Stand Up For The Truth is sponsored by Lakeshore Communications Incorporated and made possible by your generous tax-deductible donations at StandUpForTheTruth.com slash donate. This is Stand Up For The Truth, a packed hour of challenging discussion addressing important issues and topics affecting Christians across the nation. Join the conversation via email at comments at StandUpForTheTruth.com. Now, David Fiorazzo. Good morning, brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you for tuning in to the podcast today. Be encouraged that God is on the throne. He is still in control and sovereign over all things, and truth applies to all people and all places at all times, and we can trust in the truth of His Word because it is inerrant and perfect. And if you need a refresher on that, just go to Psalm 119 and dig into that. Great guest I have today, we have for you. We're excited to talk about uh, just what's been happening in his ministry. We'll get to that in a minute. Father, we love you, Lord, and we thank you for saving us. Thank you for sparing us your wrath uh, by the faith we have placed in Jesus Christ and the finished work, his finished work on the cross. Um, we thank you for your grace. It's amazing. Great is your faithfulness. Uh, we trust in you, Lord, in all things, and help us just one day at a time in everything that's happening in our communities, in our culture, around the world. And um, as Christians, Lord, may we respond in love and also in faith and not in fear, knowing that we have not been given a spirit of fear. We thank you, Holy Spirit, in us. We thank you, Jesus, for giving us life and hope, and that hope is an anchor to our soul. We love you, Lord, so much, and I know you love us. You first loved us, and we praise you for that. We lift up this hour to you. We ask that people would be informed and encouraged and that they would be pointed to the one true living God, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. It's been almost a year, but uh, we welcome back Tim Chafee, a Bible-believing Christian, husband, father, teacher, apologist, author, and cancer survivor. Tim started Midwest Apologetics in 2005. It's a ministry dedicated to defending the Word of God from the beginning to the end. And having long been interested in the creation versus evolution controversy and the corresponding age of the earth battle, uh, Tim co-authored his first book, Old Earth Creationism on Trial, The Verdict is In, and that was in 2008. Um, Tim Chafee is the author of God and Cancer, The Truth Chronicles, also co-author of a book came out last year, Fallen, The Sons of God and the Nephilim, along with uh, writing for Answers in Genesis and The Ark Encounter. Tim Chafee, welcome back to Stand Up for the Truth. And David, it's great to be on with you. Thanks for having me. Oh, Tim, uh, we're blessed to reconnect again, and God willing, we'll have you in studio in July, but that's just putting it out there as a teaser. Um, now, for our newer listeners, and since the last year, we, you know, we kind of go through some people, uh, you know, go to other podcasts, and we get newer listeners, and we've got a kind of a, a new audience, and we're growing, thankfully, in numbers. We'd love for you to just share a little bit about your background, and I do want you to just share a few bullet points on your battle being a cancer survivor. I think a lot of our listeners would be encouraged by that. Sure. Uh, well, one thing you forgot to mention in my bio is that I am from, I, I grew up in the Green Bay area. Oh, that's right. And, and so I, <laughs> I, I call that area home, and yeah. uh, you know where my loyalties lie on Sunday afternoons. Um, <laughs> Uh, so there, I just got um, most of the audience to like me automatically. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I've been on uh, the queue multiple times, uh, mostly when when Mike was there, and uh, it's it's great to to be on again with a new audience. Um, so, I, yeah, I grew up in the Green Bay area. Graduated from Bayport uh, High School back in '92. Uh, so it's been a while already, and I uh, grew up in a, a Christian home. Uh, great godly parents, and uh, they set a great example for me. And um, after uh, Bible college, I've, I've been a, a pastor. I've been a uh, Christian school teacher for about six years. And now I've been uh, in northern Kentucky working with Answers in Genesis for almost 10 years now. Wow. Full time uh, with the Ark Encounter and the Creation Museum. 
Uh, back in 2006, I was while I was a Christian school teacher, I was diagnosed with acute promyelocytic leukemia, which is quite a mouthful. Mm. And I spent a month in St. Mary's Hospital in Green Bay uh, to be treated for that. And I went through four rounds of chemotherapy. And uh, by September of that, so that was July 12th, I was diagnosed. Uh, by September of that year, I was given the all clear. And I've been uh, cancer-free ever since. Um, Praise God. I, I, yeah, I tell people I didn't want leukemia. I don't ever want it to come back. Um, but I wouldn't trade it for anything um, because God did so many things for me and has allowed me to do things uh, since that time that I never would have uh, imagined that I'd be able to do. And so I, I view it as a blessing, even though it was a very difficult one. In your book, um, that was uh, God and Cancer, uh, you demonstrate the biblical solution to the problem of suffering and mm-hmm. evil. Um, it's really difficult because I think every person can relate to some degree of the problem with evil in the world. But when it comes, when it hits home, when you're a Christian, boy, that's a that's a test of your faith right there. Because there's a lie out there that says if God really loved us, He wouldn't allow things like cancer or diseases or things like that. Please uh, encourage uh, listeners with uh, your thoughts on that perspective. Yeah, and I think that's such an important issue. In fact, even this week, there's been news of um, the, the lead singer from the Christian band, Hawk Nelson, who mm-hmm. that was one of his issues. Who Now he says he's an atheist. Is oh, If God is love, then why does he allow people to suffer so much? And, and if you don't have a proper perspective on that, then I can see why you would begin to doubt mm-hmm. God's goodness. And um, I'm, I'm not sure why that would ultimately lead to atheism, because you'd have to believe some pretty absurd things. Yes. Something comes from nothing, and, and intelligence comes from non-intelligence. But I can understand why you would um, start to question God's goodness. And um, I, I think what's important, and uh, one thing, when I mentioned the proper perspective, when I was in the hospital at St. Mary's, I never, and I'm not trying to pat myself on the back and say, good job, Tim, or anything, I never said, Lord, why me? Hmm. And I knew, it's because I knew why me. And this is, it's tough for some people to understand this, but it's because I'm a sinner and the wages of sin is death. Uh, why, why did God give me 32 years of life up until that point when I certainly didn't deserve it? Um, and not only that, uh, when we look at this world, we, we look at the, we, we see that there's remnants of beauty, but we also see so much destruction. We see death, we see violence, we see... Uh, disease and so many terrible things, but that isn't the world God created. Mm-hmm. The Bible tells us He created a perfect world that there was no death, no disease, no suffering. The reason those things are here is because of us. It's when Adam rebelled against God, those terrible things came into this world, and He's allowed us to suffer the consequences of our actions. Now, there's times where He intervenes, and the way He did that, uh, the, the greatest way that He did that, when he, is when He Himself became one of us, and he suffered more than anybody on our behalf when, when the Son of God went to the cross and, and died for our sins and then rose from the dead. So he, he became one of us to be the solution and to provide a way for us to be forgiven and to dwell with him eternally. So if we don't have that perspective, you know, if you have a, if you have a view of God that, you know, the world is billions of years old and there's always been death and suffering and that's how God made it, then when cancer comes along, because diseases have, we, we find those, evidence of those in the fossil record in fossils that are allegedly millions of years old. Allegedly. So they would have been around, yeah, <laughs> so they would have been around long before Adam and Eve, meaning that God created cancer and then called it very good in Genesis 131. Wow. And if you have that view of God, no wonder you question whether he's good. You've got to do some spiritual gymnastics to get to that point if you're thinking that it's been billions of years and that God created cancer or diseases before the first man and woman were created. You've real, that's, that's really a big leap. I don't know. I guess you would understand more than that. You've debated a lot of people on that issue on how they get there. Yeah, I think it, for most people it starts with just a, a desire to— um, what they would think they are following the science, you know, like, you know, God has given us these tools, we can study his world, and, you know, the, there are plenty of Christians who believe in God, they trust that Christ died for their sins, and they rose from the dead. 
and then for whatever reason they believe also in the billions of years and they when they start thinking through that and try to put the two together the first reaction is often well it's not a big deal you know the, the whole creation thing's kind of a side issue um, it's not the gospel and they don't realize the theolo- theological problems that that uh, brings into the text not only are, do you then have to reinterpret genesis 1 hmm. To, to switch around the order of events, you know, did the sun come before the earth like the Big Bang teaches, or vice versa, like the Bible teaches? And I could give you over 20 examples of that, where the order of events has to be changed. So ultimately you have to say, well, Genesis 1, it's not really written as historical truth, it's just a, it's just a story, it's just a, you know, maybe it's poetic, maybe it's a metaphor, whatever, and it's not written as literal history. Well, that's not how Jesus took it. Mm-hmm. That's not how Moses took it. That's not how it's written, according to the, you know, the Hebrew text. And so we should take it in a straightforward manner. And when you do that, it presents a consistent message with the rest of Scripture. And then we can use that to understand the world around us. We're speaking with author and apologist Tim Chafee. He's with Answers in Genesis. Genesis, his website, Midwest Apologetics. Tim, I didn't think we were going to get to this, but I want to go there. Um, first of all, I want to mention the Ark Encounter and Creation Museum are scheduled to reopen June 8th, and we'll get to that in detail and talk about some new exhibits coming up. But in a book you wrote with Ken Ham uh, and Bodie Hodge, uh, by the way, you work with Ken Ham, um, this is called Demolishing Supposed Bible Contradictions, Volume 2, and in there is a chapter that you wrote could the events of day six have fit within 24 hours? It's called not enough hours in the day. And that's what you were just talking about or alluding to. And I think it's important since we, I think the Holy Spirit led us down this path to talk about this foundational truth from the Bible, from Genesis. And I'd love for you to just uh, summarize that, if you could, in some of the, some bullet points for us. Yeah, so that particular argument uh, is, is laid out by Dr. Gleason Archer, in his book, uh, Survey of Old Testament Introduction. And what he does, he provides a very lengthy quote of all of these things that supposedly had to happen on day six. And in the course of uh, paraphrasing what happened on day six, he includes, you know, seven different time elements where he says, finally, at last, um, that God gave Adam the fellowship of, you know, fellowship with all of the animals for some time. And so he, he starts including all of these timing elements mm. that are not found in the text. And then he says, well, who can possibly imagine that all of this could happen on just the sixth day? Well, if you have to include multiple elements of time that aren't in the text, well, you're right. You can't imagine that, but don't add those things. And just look at what the text says. The Bible never says he had to name every single animal. He didn't have to name the fish. He just had to name certain kinds of animals that God brought to him, and he could have easily done that within just a few hours, still had time for the, you know, the deep sleep that God put him into and for God to make Eve. Uh, there, there's plenty of time for everything on day six, just like Scripture says. So it's just, it's one of those arguments that people, that, that Christians will use to try to say, see, you can't take this as a normal length day. Well, but there's no reason why you can't if you just stick with what the text says. hmm yeah, isn't I mean I'm very simple, and when I read Genesis to take it at face value, it doesn't it uh, for each day say, and then there was evening, and then there was morning, and it was a new day. Right, it really does define it for us as, as far as what the word means in that context. Mm-hmm. Now, the the word for day is the Hebrew word yom, and it, it's used very much like our word day. It can mean a long period of time when we say back in the day. Um, you know, that, that's a time period. Uh, back in the day, I used to. Run around, or run around the streets of Howard Swamico. <laughs> you know, that was, that, that was uh, during a certain period of time. It wasn't just one day. Uh, day can mean the daylight portion of the day, as it does in, in the first time it appears in the Bible, Genesis 1-5, God called the light day. Hmm. But it also can mean 24-hour day, and it usually means that. And when it is used with evening and morning, when it's used in a numbered sequence like it is, you know, first day, second day, third day, all the way up to the sixth day, then it's pretty clear what it means in that context. And I, I think one thing that people miss, and this is an argument that, that a lot of people don't use, and I wish we would become more familiar with it. If you think about Exodus 20, verse 11, this is in the giving of the Ten Commandments, uh, the, the fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. God describes that, and he, he elaborates on that a little bit, and he says the reason they were going to work six days and rest for one is because that's what he did. He says, 
Uh, for in six days the Lord made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. So he's saying, Israel, you're going to work six days and rest for one because I did that. Now, what's important to recognize about that is the Israelites would have heard that before they ever heard Genesis 1. Hmm. When they came out of Egypt and went to Mount Sinai, they would have heard the giving of the law first. So when they heard about the creation of the world, they would have heard God made everything six days, rested for one. That's what we're going to do is work six days, rest one. Then as they're wandering in the wilderness and Moses records Genesis for them, then they hear the detail about that. Here's what God did on day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six. How are they going to understand that in light of the way that they were already taught um, in Exodus 20? Hmm. One more question, and maybe this is because of my simple mind. Um, if some say that the earth has been around for millions of years, or I, I guess maybe some say billions um, why can't it be trillions? Is do some all do some actually say trillions also, or why can't it be more than that? I mean, it's not observable science. Yeah, they, they usually would say that the universe goes back between thirteen and fifteen billion years old. And that's just extrapolating on what they believe to be like the rate of expansion from okay. uh, what they believe to be the Big Bang. And so they, but but there have been some uh, astronomers and others who have proposed what's called like an oscillating universe where. You'd have a big bang where there's this expansion, then eventually things will contract, and you'd have another big bang. So they, they would see it more as an eternal universe because, you know, the laws of thermodynamic matter can neither be created nor destroyed. So where did all of this come from? Hmm. And so they, they kind of have to argue for it to be eternal in that sense. But um, there, yeah, there just become multiple problems when you try to think, think through all of these issues. But that's usually where they get the billions from as far as the Earth. Okay. Those, they would say about 4.5 billion, and that's um, what they would say our solar system is. Okay, I, I think I even understand that where the, where they could possibly uh, get that. Um, we have three minutes before we have to take our first break, uh, Tim. Um, you also spoke recently to a Teen Boys School in Missouri, I believe it was, and uh, you spoke on false claims, like people actually saying. Jesus was a myth. He never existed, which is one of the most ridiculous things. I have to be more patient when I hear people say that, knowing that even outside the Bible, there's history, secular historians, Josephus and others, that Jesus didn't even exist. And it's just astounding. So how do you handle some of these, and what was your talk about? Yeah, well, it was to deal with that one primarily, that argument that Jesus never existed or that he was copied from pagan gods. You know, these, these things are very popular on the Internet nowadays. A lot of uh, young skeptics will make these ridiculous claims that, uh, that there's no basis in reality for. Uh, but then there's other claims about Jesus that, you know, that he was married or that uh, he was deified at the Council of Nicaea, that nobody had really ever viewed him as God before that, except for all the early church fathers who wrote about it, and <laughs> Jesus himself, and the mm-hmm. apostles in the New Testament. But, you know, if you don't count all those people. <laughs> <laughs> all the eyewitnesses. Uh, yeah, all the eyewitnesses, yeah. So I went through a lot of those arguments, and, and what you'll find, in fact, what I usually do when somebody says that there's no historian, you know, contemporary historian who wrote about Jesus, who uh, nobody living in that time, there were all sorts of historians, and, and nobody wrote about him, I'll say, can you give me the name of one historian living at that time who should have written about Jesus and didn't. Mm. And they can't give an answer. That's good. Now, there's a book out there by a guy named Michael Polkovich, who's a skeptic, and he lists like 126 names. About half of them died before, or about half of them have no surviving writings at all. And then a bunch of them died before Jesus ever lived. A bunch of them lived really far away from Jesus. And when you get down to it, there's only about five or six that could conceivably have written about Jesus, but uh, like one of them, Gallio, the, the proconsul, um, I think it was in Achaia, we read about him in Acts. Um, he wrote a letter to his brother about the events in his city. So why would he mention Jesus in that letter? Hmm. You know, he's hundreds of miles away from Jesus. Why would he even bother in just that one letter? And how do we know he didn't write about him at other times? I mean, it's, it's really an argument from silence for the skeptic. But we have plenty of people who did write about him, whether Jewish, Greek, or Roman historians. And the abundance of manuscripts we have available, I mean, like like no other ancient work, ancient literary work, um, the Bible and the New Testament documents and 
Thank God for the Dead Sea Scrolls. That's a whole nother topic for a whole nother podcast, Tim. Uh, Tim Chafee, uh, Answers in Genesis. We were, are going to talk about the Creation Museum and the Ark Encounter, and there's some brand new exhibits, and we're going to get into uh, a little bit of apologetics more uh, when we come back on Stand Up For The Truth. Your monthly financial support of StandUpForTheTruth.com is needed and appreciated. Now, back to today's Stand Up For The Truth with David Fiorazzo. Our guest is Tim Chafee, Answers in Genesis, Midwest Apologetics, and author of several books. Um, By the way, if you do want to uh, get a hold of us, you can email comments at StandUpForTheTruth.com. And uh, we're going to talk briefly about uh, Tim's book. It's called Fallen, The Sons of God and the Nephilim. We don't hear a lot of conversations or a lot of sermons on this. It's Genesis 6-4, when the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. So, Tim, a very—I know it's because it's in Genesis, and it's really important from Genesis 1-11, to as Ken Ham and others really stress the importance of that as laying the foundations of the truth of God's Word. Why did you write that book, and what do you hope for people to get from that? Well, you mentioned part of it. It is right there in the middle of Genesis 1-11, through and uh, you've mentioned that I work at Answers in Genesis, so I need to give this disclaimer. Uh, as a ministry, we don't take an official stand on the the proper way to interpret that passage, Genesis 6-4, through uh, the identity of the sons of God, and uh, all of that. There, there's three main views throughout church history that people have held, and then there's some also some side views. So as a ministry, AIG doesn't take an official position, uh, but individuals within the ministry are allowed to. So <laughs> uh, I, I, I chose that as my topic for my THM thesis back in uh, 2011 is when I completed that. And as I was doing more and more research on it, um, I realized that there there really isn't a whole lot out there that is done in a serious uh, in a serious format, a serious Bible study. A lot of what's out there, uh, YouTube videos filled with conspiracy theories right. and all sorts of um, half maybe they're half right in certain ways. I mean, they they start with something and they just go off in, into crazy town. And then there's <laughs> there's other things where there's a whole bunch of misinformation about the passage, trying to give a different interpretation. Where there's a lot of bad arguments really on both sides, and I thought, well, let's really just dive into this passage and create and, and develop what I think is going to be the most detailed book that's ever been done on the topic. And so it's uh, nearly 500 pages, just primarily on those four verses. Wow. Um, and uh, it's not a technical read. You know, you don't have to be an expert in Hebrew and Greek and, <laughs> in order to understand just about everything in there. I mean, I do get into the languages a little bit, but mostly in footnotes. And um, I, I wanted to shed light on what the Bible is really talking about there, because I think it, it's setting us up for what's about to happen with the flood. It's, um, it explains a few passages that are talked about in the New Testament, and quite a few passages in the Old Testament that people aren't familiar with, uh, that they kind of just gloss over. So as you come to a deeper understanding of that topic, the rest of the Bible really starts to open up as well, and you see things in a little bit different light, and, and so it provides greater clarity. I know some people like to skip it because it's controversial or confusing, but, you know, the Bible tells us that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and uh, I I think that includes those four verses as well. So I, I, I thought it was important to try to, um, to try to write something that was accurate and serious on the topic. Mm-hmm. Let's move on now. By the way, we'll put that link in today's podcast notes at StandUpForTheTruth.com. The good news, um, the Ark Encounter and Creation Museum are reopening on June 8th. Uh, you Woo-hoo. guys, yeah, my goodness, you guys have, I'm guessing you've been closed since sometime in March. How has COVID-19 affected the Ark Encounter and Creation Museum and even your jobs there? And what have you, what have you guys been doing for the last couple months? Yeah, well, it's had a huge impact on the ministry. Uh, we've, we've had to change the way we we approach things quite a bit. Um, we, we shut down sometime around March 15th, 16th. I don't remember the exact date. Um, but by the time we open, it'll be nearly three months. Wow. And um, as a result of that, you know, we a large part of our revenue was cut off. You don't have anybody coming to the museum or the ark anymore. So you can't afford to keep everybody on staff. You know, we, during peak periods in summer, we employ about a thousand people, hmm. and there was really no way to keep the museum staff and the art staff uh, employed at that point. So 
unfortunately, we've had to furlough a, a large percentage of, of our employees. Now, some of the uh, managers, some of the, the teachers, speakers, uh, researchers have been kept on. Uh, I'm, I'm blessed that I was, I've been able to work the entire time. Uh, I'm part of the design team for the exhibits at the Art and the Museum, and we had already done fundraising for the exhibits that we're working on. Mm-hmm. So all of that funding was there for our team, for at least for most of the members on the team. And so we were able to continue working. Uh, right now we're developing an exhibit for the Creation Museum that's supposed to open um, later this summer. Maybe it'll be early fall because of the, you know, because of the delay. But it's, on, it's called Fearfully and Wonderfully Made. It's about the, celebrating the development of, of life in the womb, of human life wow. in the womb. Wow. And I cannot wait for that exhibit to open. It's just been a, such a blessing to be a part of it. And uh, it's actually, we're going to do it in two phases. There's going to be a, a temp, I don't want to call it temporary. It's a, it's a mobile exhibit in that it's going to be one that we can package and send it somewhere else anywhere in the world, and they can have that exhibit. Oh, my goodness. Uh, that's going to be our first phase. And then the second phase, which will open next year, Lord willing, is going to be a larger expansion of that exhibit that will be a permanent one in the museum. Life in the Womb, so important. That sounds like a phenomenal exhibit, and uh, the truth and the facts and the science and what the Bible says about life. Can't wait for you to, to hear uh, more about that, but I want to just clarify something. You said that's going to open later, like July or maybe later in the summer, but both the Ark Encounter and the Creation Museum are going to reopen June 8th. You were just referring to that specific exhibit, correct? Yes, yes, yeah. Thanks for clarifying. Yeah. Sure. June 8th, we're looking forward to. Um, now, there, there's going to be you know, certain policies in place that, that our employees will have to follow based on you know con- the state of Kentucky guidelines and um, you know, things we have to do differently as far as food service or maybe people lining up or whether our employees were masked, all those sorts of things. As far as I know at this time, guests are not going to be, it's not going to be mandatory for guests to wear masks. I don't think the state is imposing that at this point. Um, I think they're in, we're supposed to encourage that but not uh, demand that. Uh, but just if anybody's planning on a trip on June 8th or shortly thereafter, just keep an eye on our website, mm-hmm. uh, arkencounter.com or creationmuseum.com, and, and make sure that you're following whatever the latest is there. Because we'll, we'll keep everybody updated there. Well, so I'm glad you brought that up. You know, we're you're talking about Kentucky guidelines because that's where the Creation Museum and the Ark Encounter um, are housed there, and that's where you guys work. Um, what are your thoughts, Tim? Uh, and, and anything you say, it's just it's just your thoughts, your opinion on this. On There's so much conflicting information on just something as simple as wearing a mask or not wearing a mask. And there's a little debate and people can people can get uncomfortable or heated. Like people that don't, don't wear a mask, we walk into a store and you see people wearing masks. And then you can kind of feel guilty for not wearing one. But some of the science and some of the things that are coming out, the research is really saying that, well, it may or may not prevent this, uh, you know, COVID-19. So could you please talk about just what your thoughts are on that? Yeah, it, it's difficult for people to know what to do. Because mm-hmm. You have even people like Dr. Fauci, who, is, you know, so many people consider him to be the leading expert. He said conflicting things mm-hmm. on, on the mask, whether you should wear them or shouldn't wear yep. them, whether they're helpful or not. And then so many other people are doing the same thing. And it's just very difficult to discern what is true and what isn't. And as, as Christians, we want to we should want to follow, you know, our Lord's command to love one another, to love our neighbor as ourselves, And so that should involve wanting to protect other people from, from anything that's dangerous, like the coronavirus. But if you don't have ac- accurate information or you don't know what information is right, how do you make an informed decision on what the best approach is? Exactly. Um, so, you know, with the, and, and also with the length of the shutdowns um, and, you can tell that oftentimes it is politically motivated. If you look at the ones who have the longest and strictest guidelines that are not following the science at all, but just have <laughs> some sort of agenda, and we, and we don't have to get into too much of that. But yep. um, at, at some point, you know, right away, I was not opposed to churches um, closing their doors when we didn't have a lot of information about the virus. At first, for them to yes. To, yeah, at first. Um, because of that idea to love one another, it, the Bible tells us not to neglect the you know, gathering together, not to, you know, coming together. But it doesn't mean that thou must meet every single Sunday or else you're breaking a command. Mm-hmm. You know, so if we have to take a two, three, four-week break or something like that because of something like this, 
I get that. But once you see hundreds and hundreds of people in Walmart over in over here, we've got Kroger grocery stores and uh, you see hundreds of people all over the place and being allowed to meet in certain places, but you can't do that in church. <laughs> then there, there seems to be a, a, you know, a double standard. And since we live in the United States of America, we have the right to the freedom of religion, that freedom from religion, the freedom of religion is guaranteed in the first, uh, in the first amendment. And so it's not wrong for Christians to stand up for rights. I know there's some believers who say, no, we're just supposed to let everybody walk all over us. We're supposed to, and they don't use those words, but basically, you know, the world's going to do what the world's going to do. We, we as Christians just sit back. Well, Paul didn't do that. No. When he, was, when he was beaten, he said, hey, I'm a Roman citizen. You're not allowed to do this. Or I appeal to Caesar. Exactly. And he was exercising his rights as a Roman citizen. And in the United States, we have rights guaranteed by the Constitution that we're allowed to stand up for. But I think we need to do that with gentleness and respect, too. Exactly. And I think people use uh, the Romans 13, obey governing authorities, uh, instructions as universal, covering everything, no matter what the government decides. And that's not true. Um, that's not what we should do to to right. the to any and, and all extents. Um, I want to clarify something I see on the Ark Encounter website, Tim. Uh, it says kids 10 and under are free. Is that have they always been free or is it that's just this year you're doing that? That, that was for the year 2020. That was a, a campaign that we were doing, and maybe you've seen the commercials with the giraffe family that was promoting that. <laughs> um, yeah, so that, that's a okay. campaign for 2020, and uh, we're, we're still going to honor that throughout the year, even though we had this three-month shutdown. I would guess, friends listening, because we got people listening from different states across the country online, and they a lot of people download the podcast, you know, even several days, even this weekend, people will be listening to this podcast, um, if they're thinking about going, I would guess, and maybe I'm wrong, Tim, I'd love to get your thoughts, the first couple weeks or the first month or so, the crowds might not be as uh, large or it might not be as packed because of maybe some people's concerns. So that might be a great time starting June 8th to go to the Creation Museum or Ark Encounter. Yeah, I think I think you're right. Um, there, I think there's going to be a lot of people who have been just itching to get out and go, <laughs> uh, not just to the Ark of the Museum, but just out of their houses. And so I think there's going to be a large influx of people doing that. But I think uh, as far as the attendance at the Ark and, uh, and the museum, and I, I can't guarantee this, I can't forecast the future like God can, but um, a large part of, uh, or a pretty significant part of our attendance has been bus tours. You know, we might get 40 or 50 buses in a day mm. uh, filled with people. And, and a lot of times they're senior citizens, not always. Okay. I think we won't have a lot of that population coming in in the first few weeks as people kind of feel things out. Right. And, you know, is it safe or not? But but maybe we will. So I, I really don't know what to expect. I think there's going to be more people showing up than what most people anticipate. But I don't think we're going to see 8,000 people a day like we've seen right. sometimes in the past during the summer. That'll probably take time to build up. And I would think in every uh, major event, public event, um, the, unfortunately, this I thought this was a interesting move. They shut down the Wisconsin State Fair this year for the first time in history. I'm thinking, really? You had to go to that extent? Anyway, I understand um, some people don't have all the information. They're trying to you know, do what they think is is overly yeah, conscious. Nobody wants to be the the blame for a second outbreak. You know, you're, you're everybody is scared of being the the group that messes up if something <laughs> were to happen again as we reopen. Yeah, and so I know they're being overly cautious in many ways. Um, but I guess if you follow the science, most of it is not transmitted when you're outside and right. it's warmer. And it, there's just so many different things that we're seeing. Mm-hmm. Um, but especially when people are shutting things down a month or two or three in advance. And then I, I think it's a bit I excessive. I know. And plus, you know, I wouldn't call it an outbreak but or, or a second wave of coronavirus, but it's natural the more people get out, and no matter where you are around certain people, that it, there are going to be new people uh, getting, you know, testing positive for coronavirus. And it's not going to be a specific result of any particular theme park or gathering it just might be they might have just flown from new york city somewhere who knows so it's just a matter of that's just how god designed us and i don't know a lot about the science and 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 all that behind it but i know we have bacteria. i know we have 
immunities. We build up things. If you can't build up immunity to something you have not been exposed to, and we have two minutes, Tim, I'd love to give your thoughts on that before we take our next break. Yeah, well, I think you said it well. Uh, there's, I know they talk about herd immunity. They, they throw around a lot of different terms that many people would not be familiar with, but God did design us in a way that uh, to uh, with the immune system to protect us against certain things. We know there are some people who have who are at much greater risk, who have more compromised immune systems that really need to be careful. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then other ones we see who are barely impacted by it at all. And so I think you you really got to look at it in a measured approach rather than a one-size-fits-all. Um, and real quickly, we were talking about the opening of the museum and the ark again. Um, well, we a lot of people probably have not seen it because we opened up three brand-new exhibits in uh, November at the Creation Museum, one on starting points, uh, one on biblical authority, and one on the relevance of Genesis, and they are spectacular. You can go on our Facebook page and look at some of the exhibits, and you can even see some videos. Maybe you'll even find one with me leading people around. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, there's there's so much going on there. And also, we mentioned earlier, how have we had to do things differently at Answers in Genesis? Well, we've also, since we don't have people coming to the attractions, we've tried to make our teaching available. So we've had daily uh, Facebook Live and YouTube videos where our speakers, including myself, are presenting at noon each day. We also cool. started our new streaming platform called Answers.tv. So mm. you can check that out. Um, and we're putting a ton of our content on there. And it's uh, you can get a seven-day free trial or for a whole year, you can get it for under $40. So it's, that's a great option as well. Answers.tv. And uh, streaming live every day at noon, weekdays? Uh, yeah, well, that's actually a, a streaming platform. Okay, that's like different. Netflix or something like that. So that, you can use that anytime. But, yeah, we have programs on uh, speakers at noon on Facebook Live or on YouTube, our YouTube channel. And at other times during the day, we have other programs that we're doing too. Awesome. I'm definitely going to look forward to checking some of those out. I do want to talk a little bit more about the, the new exhibits, Tim, uh, starting points, biblical authority. I would love for you to share your thoughts on that. That's something you mentioned uh, before we got on the air here. But um, I also want to talk about relevance of Genesis because that is something, that series by Ken Ham was something that really ministered to me about, I don't know, five, ten years ago, uh, the video series. And uh, boy, it, he just really brings out what's what was happening in Europe with the churches shutting closing down and then how in America things are starting to happen it's very fascinating and i would love to touch on that as soon as we come back with Tim Chafee on stand up for the truth thank you for listening and sharing today's show via standupforthetruth.com/podcast now back to stand up for the truth here's david fiorazzo we're on the line with apologist author and uh, he works at answers in genesis and or for Answers in Genesis, a Midwest Apologetics. We're talking about the Creation Museum and the Ark Encounter with Tim Chafee. Uh, Tim, the three new exhibits. Uh, briefly, we just want to touch on starting points and relevance of Genesis. Yeah, so we talked about the relevance of Genesis a bit early on in our in this interview. We were talking about why it's so important to take Genesis 1 as written, uh, because then you have death and suffering as a result of Adam's sin rather than uh, before Adam's sin. Mm-hmm. And if you think about that issue in a little more detail, if if Adam's sin didn't bring physical death into this world, which you know evolution would say it was around long before Adam's sin, anybody who adds the billions of years of Scripture, even if you're a Christian trying to harmonize the two, you're putting death and suffering and disease before Adam sinned. Then how come the solution to sin is the physical death of the Son of God on the cross and the physical bodily resurrection from the grave? If sin and death have no connection, Hmm. which is what happens if you add the billions of years. You've, you've undermined that foundation. Yeah, you can still believe the message of the cross, but you've undermined the necessity of it, the foundational truth behind it. So there's a, there's a glaring inconsistency there, and it, it really makes it so the cross is not a consistent message throughout Scripture. Yes. But, um, and there's other reasons why Genesis is relevant as well. I mean, if you think of issues that we see in our culture today, you know, we, we see debates about uh, gay marriage or uh, homosexuality, the, the transgender issues. Well, what did the Bible tell us at the very beginning? Genesis 1 and 2, God made them male and female. He said, for this reason, a man shall leave his, his father and mother may join to his wife. Uh, so the Bible speaks about marriage right there in the beginning. It speaks about gender right there at the beginning. And if we throw out those chapters or if we undermine those chapters or if we say they're not important, they're not relevant, we don't have answers to those questions either. Mm. 
And by the way, Jesus quoted the definition of marriage. So Jesus also referred to Genesis and creation and and the reason for marriage, right? Yes, he did. And, and he even, you know, sometimes people say, well, he never spoke against homosexuality. Actually, he said sexual immorality. And that would fall under that category from a biblical point of view. That's one of the many types of sexual and moral sins. Hmm. Um, so he did address it, just not using that one word. Right. But uh, not to get into that uh, issue too much. So there's a lot of reasons why Genesis is relevant. And when we when we put it to the side and say it's not that important, we've really lost the foundational truths that, that Scripture gives us. Hmm. And then we no longer have a consistent message. Um, you asked about starting points as well, yes. and and one of the things that people don't understand is that, that so often they say, well, this is a this is a debate between science and faith, or this is between fact and belief, and it's it just simply false. It's a it's a worldview about the past, present, and future versus a worldview about the past, present, and future. We have the same evidence. We look at the same rock, the same trees, the same fossils, the same stars, the same planet. And we reach different conclusions because we have different starting points. We have different presuppositions as we look at those things. Uh, one of the easy ways to understand that is, you know, Ken Ham has shared before, you can stand at the rim of the Grand Canyon as a Christian, standing next to an evolutionist, you could say, wow, look at this, a lot of water over a little bit of time. <laughs> the evolutionists say, wow, a little bit of water over a long period of time. You're looking at the same thing, hmm. but through different lenses. And people don't understand that truth. So what we did in the starting points room is to highlight that in so many different ways, whether it's looking at biology with the with the animals, whether it's about anthropology, looking at ancient humans, and also at the ape kind, which is not anthropology, that's also uh, animals, but you know, the evolution is part of anthropology, um, whether it's looking at a whole bunch of different disciplines, uh, astronomy and uh, chemistry and all these mm-hmm. different kinds of scientific disciplines to show the difference between what is known as historical or origin science and operational science, which is, you know, chemistry. You can test and repeat things. You can perform the experiment, say you can build, make a hypothesis, and you can test those things and see if it's accurate. But when you're dealing with origins, you're asking questions about what happened in the past, and you don't have direct observation of that. Mm-hmm. It's more like it's more like forensics. You know, you're like a crime scene. You're you're looking at little bits of evidence here, and then you're trying to piece everything together. Well, even with a crime scene, the best thing you can do is if you have a reliable eyewitness who saw what happened. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and in our case, God was there. He knows what he did. He <laughs> exactly. And he told us what he did. <laughs> exactly. When you think about the the uh, crime scene, I think about God's crime scene. I think about J. Warner Wallace, an apologist, yeah. f- former uh, police uh, homicide detective, phenomenal in uh, the apologetics approach in examining creation. Um, uh, Tim, I know you kind of— I don't know if you kind of lean toward uh, biblical authority and that exhibit as being kind of a a favorite of yours, but I think it's so important as we look around our country and the world and we see the problems of sin and the problems even of Christians kind of conforming to the world and debating over what Jesus said and who he is. This issue of biblical authority is so important. I'd love for you to share your thoughts on that. Yeah, I, a few years back, we opened an exhibit called Christ's Cross Consummation. And so it's going through the life and ministry of Jesus and, and the crucifixion and resurrection and his return. Um, and I always thought that was going to be my favorite exhibit, just because how can you be talking about Jesus? And, and it's just a beautiful exhibit. And then we opened Biblical Authority. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, I, I have a 1A and a 1B, or maybe they're both tied for number one. Um, and I absolutely love this ex- exhibit. It's about 2,000 square feet. Uh, each of the three new ones are about 2,000 square feet. And in, if you can picture it like a, a big uh, tic-tac-toe board that you're looking at it from above, you have like nine different quad, nine different sections. There won't be quadrants. Mm-hmm. There won't be four of those. Uh, <laughs> um, you're moving through that, and each different square is like a different period in biblical history from uh, way back in Abraham's time and what Egypt may have looked like at that time and also at Joseph's time. And then you're looking at uh, Canaan during Rahab's time. You're looking at Israel during David's time and during Hezekiah's time. You're looking at Babylon during Daniel's time, Jesus's, the, uh, Jerusalem and, and Israel during Jesus's time, and the Greco-Roman world throughout the rest of the, the book of Acts. And so you're moving through different periods in biblical history and in each section, we're showing a couple of different things. We're showing archaeological evidence that confirms the Bible in each place. You know, like 
for a long time, skeptics had said, well, there's no evidence that David ever existed. They treat him kind of like an, uh, King Arthur. You know, he's just this legendary character that the Israelites made up because, they, you know, it sounds great for their history. <laughs> um, until the Chaldean stellate was found in the, in the 1990s, which mentions, goes back to about 850 B.C., so about 150 years after David's time. And it mentioned the House of David as being the, the line of kings in Israel. Well, you can't have a House of David if there was no David. Hmm. And, and, and so we found things like this time and time and time again for each of these eras. And, of course, the, the closer you get to our time, especially in the book of Acts, there's a lot more evidence to find. Uh, things haven't been destroyed yet. They're not buried as deep. That for whatever reason, we, we have a lot more evidence for that. So I had to be very choosy when it came to the book of Acts because we didn't have, you know, 100 feet of wall space to put all the evidence in there. <laughs> Um, so we do that in each section, but the other thing we do, and this is, uh, I think it's really important for Christians to understand, we say biblical authority, we say that the Bible is our authority, not because there are 66 books that are put together into one book, and because we preach out of it, because we teach out of it. That's not why we view biblical authority. We view it as the authority because it's the Word of God. Mm-hmm. And God doesn't just say, I'm the boss. He demonstrates it throughout each of those eras of history. Not only does he raise up nations and tear them down, not only does he bring judgment when he says he's going to bring judgment, he, he also tells the future and says, here's what's going to happen. If you obey me, this will happen. If you disobey, here's what's going to happen. And all of those things come to pass, but he also demonstrates his authority over the gods of those nations. You know, when you think about the uh, Philistines with Dagon and the Ark of the Covenant goes into the Temple of Dagon, and the next day... The statue of Dagon's down on its face. They pick it back up, and then the next day it's down on its face. Its hands and its head are broken off, and the Philistines say, well, we got to get it out of here. Well, throughout the Old Testament, God is demonstrating his power over the gods of the different nations. He even says when he brought the plagues on Egypt, I will execute judgment on all the gods of Egypt, because each one of the plagues corresponded to a different Egyptian god who was supposed to be protecting the Nile, protecting children, protecting the livestock, or whatever it was. And God was showing, no, I'm the one in power here. I'm the one in charge, and you need to follow me, not any of these Egyptian gods, not any of these other cultures' gods. I'm the one true God. Mm. And so he proved it through his actions throughout Scripture, and he proved it through his words as well. That is fascinating, Tim, that each one of the plagues corresponded to a a pagan god or deity. Is that what I, I just heard you say? Yeah, I think it's, uh, it's. I think it's Exodus twelve twelve uh, is the verse where he says, "I'll execute judgment on all the gods of Egypt." Maybe I'm not remembering that reference accurately, but I think wow. that's the one. And, and then, yeah, historically, you can go back and look mm-hmm. at what the different gods of Egypt were, and you can see the frogs and the the cattle, the the lice, or you know, all of these different ones were against a different god. And the last one on the the firstborn was against Pharaoh himself, and he was supposed to be a representative of the the god Ra. Mm-hmm. And so it's against their most powerful God and against Pharaoh himself. And God said, See, even your most powerful gods cannot stop me. Wow. Um, I, I love how God just really clearly, even in Isaiah in several chapters, mocks idols and uh, says, So call out to your gods. They, they, they cannot see, they cannot hear, and yet you worship them. You know, I, I'm, I love yeah. how God is very clear about him being the one true God. Well, yeah, and even in that section, it's Isaiah 40 through 46, he, he says, I'm going to show you that I'm the one true God. I will tell you the end from the beginning. Before they come to pass, I'm going to tell you things, and they're going to happen. The prophecy. Bible is the only book that has the prophecy like yes. it, because God is the only one who has perfect knowledge of the future and the, the power to bring things about. These other ones cannot tell the future like that. And so he does that time and time again. In fact, a, a, nearly a third of the Bible was prophetic when it was written. Mm-hmm. And it's so sad, Tim, that there's so many churches that almost ignore uh, Bible prophecy, and that that is something that we've talked about a lot on this podcast. It is astounding to me, knowing, first of all, how encouraging it is, and just, mm-hmm. just the mathematical odds of a prophecy or prophecies being fulfilled in detail. Is For example, Jesus—I was just reading in Zechariah 14 this morning— you know, about when Jesus yeah. came in on Palm Sunday, riding on a donkey. Also, the 30 pieces of silver. That is fascinating. Mm-hmm. That was written about 500 years before Christ. And, and for the, the 30 pieces of silver for the potter's field. Yes, yeah, specifically. It's, it's, yep. 
Oh, my goodness. And, of course, as we know, Judas you know, threw back the 30 pieces of silver in the temple, giving it back, and he went out and hanged himself, and they used that money, the blood money, for Jesus, which was the price of a common slave in those days, by the way. That's what Jesus' mm-hmm. life was worth to them. And they bought that field, the potter's field. Phenomenal. 500 years before, they prophesied that. Um, and, of course, Jesus, who can uh, forget if we uh, understand the New Testament, he said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. He didn't just claim to be God and the one in authority and say, I am. He demonstrated it by his power, his, the miracles, uh, the prophecies, and his word is true. Tim, uh, final thoughts. Yeah, I think, I, I think one thing we overlook sometimes when we try to do apologetics, when we're defending the faith, I think the greatest apologetic for most people is love, is that we need to show them the love of God through our actions, yes. through our words. Um, and so often we, we get uh, involved in this debate because we want to we want to show people that we're right. We want to stand up for God, for, stand up for the truth. We want to show that God's word is true. And mm-hmm. sometimes we lose sight of the real reason we're doing that, and that is to honor our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who loved this world so much that he was willing to come and die for us. People who, even people who crucified him, he was willing to die for. And if we can't show that type of love to other people that God has shown to us, then what are we doing? Mm. You know, so we, so we got to make sure that our actions match our message. Excellent point. Great reminders. Tim Chafee, Midwest Apologetics, Answers in Genesis, Ark Encounter. Thank you so much, brother, and God willing, we will see you in July. Hey, David, sounds great. Thanks for having me on. All right. Thank you. God bless you. Uh, when we come back, we'll uh, share our guests for next week. Stand Up for the Truth, a ministry of Lakeshore Communications Incorporated. Keep the discussion going on social media. Stand Up WI on Facebook and Twitter. Now we wrap up today's Stand Up for the Truth. All right. Monday, Alex Newman of the Newman Report Freedom Project, the new American. He'll be with us. We'll talk about education and some updates. You know, it never stops, right? Even though kids haven't been in school, and even though it's almost summer, um, those that are editing, writing, rewriting curriculum and trying to force their agendas through the public school system. They don't stop even though uh, school is out. So Alex Newman on Monday, Patrick Wood on Tuesday. Can't wait to get him back with us. It's been so uh, quite a while, I think, since we've had Patrick Wood on. And um, let's see, let's jump to Thursday. A brand new guest, Dr. Raji Gurgis. He wrote a phenomenal book on the supernatural and about uh, demonic oppression, depression, things like that, mental illness. So we'll talk with Dr. Raji Gurgis next Thursday. And Pastor Gary Gilley uh, from Illinois, uh, he hasn't been on with us for a while. He's got a new book out. So we're going to get to a lot of these uh, men of God next week and talk about some very fascinating uh, subjects as we continue on the podcast. Please keep sharing them. You guys are making a difference. It's not us. It's uh, your sharing the podcast. And we appreciate that so much, as well as your prayers. And if we can pray for you in any way, please let us know. This is private. It won't be for broadcast or on. We won't uh, share it. Just privately, we can pray for you here as a staff. Well, God bless you. Have a great weekend. And always keep speaking the truth about things that matter.